Greetings, dear listeners. We got our friend Sam Kimbrell on the podcast this week. Sam's a good friend and has written for us before. He started up a center at the Aspen Institute on Philosophy and Society. We figured he'd be the best person to get on to talk about AI, ChatGPT, and what it means to be sentient. This episode is a rich one and quickly gets into exactly what we're doing at Wisdom of Crowds in the first place. It's not just about why we believe what we believe, but also about the limits of knowledge and about how being humble about what we don't and can't know is absolutely essential for building better things and living a better life. Become a paying subscriber to hear the whole conversation. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to support our work. On to the show. I don't know, lads, you know, like, um, I guess, you know, to sort of start talking about this, have you guys seen that, like, GPT-4 came out this week, the, like, the new version of, uh, of the, uh, the, the AI? Yeah, uh, they said it's better than human beings, that's what I saw on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, smarter, smarter on, 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 like, LSATs and shit, <laughs> On right? all these exams, no, that's yeah. a serious thing, I mean, I don't know how hard, I mean, I guess the LSAT's probably hard, but... Um, well, you know, you know, the funny thing, I, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good way to think about it. You know, I, I remember, um, maybe we even joked about it online, but like my first experiment playing with chat GPT was something like, while I was still at the Atlantic council was like chat GPT, write me a grant proposal, you know, for $150,000 <laughs> on like regional economic integration for the Western Balkans. And it did a really freaking good job. Uh, not like. You could take co copy and paste it and you know submit it, but like it did a decent enough job and not like not all that rote either because I was specific enough in my request to to make it like somewhat technical, and um, it 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 like really highlighted to for me the extent to which what ChatGPT is good at is um, is stuff that that we think we need human beings to do because we think it requires human stuff. But actually, if you think about it in terms of like machines, like sending signals and messages to each other where things need to be, you know, if you've done any programming, like if you're writing a program that communicates with other programs, you have a format of the message that needs to be sent and the message needs to include data, 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 data. And then, and then, like, you fill those things in into the sort of data structure, and that's how you, like, systems communicate with each other. And it, it dawned on me. It's like you're, just, you're, just like, you're just, like, describing university bureaucracy. Well, like, any bureaucracy, really. Yeah. Or, or grant-making, <laughs> yeah, like, you yeah. know, with, with, like, think tanks and, yeah. and, and, like, NGOs and stuff like that. Is There's a grant-making institution and, like, the grantee. And the grantee needs to send a perfectly formatted message yeah, to yeah. the other system, which takes the message, is able to parse out what it's about. There's a lot of fluff there in this thing, like that encodes the <laughs> the, the data. Yeah. The other machine goes boop, 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 and it's populated by human beings that are all like boop, 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 yeah. boop, and then like craps out a message like, yes, you get the grant. No, yeah, so, you don't get the grant. So, you know? so this, this is not an argument that... Uh, that ChatGPT is human. This is an argument that university administrators are not human. Well, this but this, the... this gets this gets to the the, the core of, of of my essay and why we thought we'd have you on, Sam. Which you know, I I I don't know again if I've said it out loud yet, but like I I you know I wrote that essay 
sort of as a provocation, uh, and I, I think of it as a provocation to you, Sam, and uh, sort of a goad to Shadi to sort of, you know, push on in, in uh, the way he thinks about it and talks about, uh, you know, the individual human agency, uh, you know, dignity and all the other things that are important to, for a functioning democracy. And we'll include a link in the show notes to your essay. What was it titled, Demir? Um, Chat something GPT and me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, great. it's great. Great title. <laughs> that is a good title. Yeah, that was like an 11 o'clock p.m. title <laughs> idea. Okay, so I just want to put something out there, and I want to just offer a disclaimer to people. I stopped following the news, so I don't really know a whole lot of things. Yeah, good. I practice what I preach. Yeah, you, you, know? you preached it in the Atlantic, said the only way to happiness is to stop following the news. You know, Here I, was, I, am. I, I was, I was, I was, you know, to, to just do a little side note on that. I think it was a great essay in the Atlantic and I think people should go and read it. We'll also put it in the show notes, but you didn't put in my favorite and earliest proponent of this worldview. Do you remember, we've talked about him on the show before, uh, Aaron Swartz, that kid who ended up committing oh, yeah. suicide oh. after, after, you know, he had, I think went to MIT and downloaded most of the like journals the academic journals that were at one of the big databases and was yeah. just gonna like release them and they locked yeah. him up and he killed himself yeah. in jail yeah. he had uh he had an essay which i'll dig up the link to and also put in the show notes called uh i hate the news or something like that huh. and this was i don't know that's I, a, I, yeah that's an amazing that's an amazing it's thing. such a short essay and he just yeah. makes the point it's just like most of the news is actually irrelevant to me and he even goes further and more provocatively says like you know being like up on the news, we like to think as like participants in a democracy, you know, we need to be up on the news. Like this is our duty as citizens is to be up on the news. And he's like, that's bullshit. Like look at any any newspaper story, how many times it gets corrected, how many times, you know, things change, and how many times in the course of a week the story develops. Like how important is me is it for me to know every you know, turn. It's like, instead of a, a news, I will read a magazine. Instead of a magazine, I'll read a book. And maybe the best thing to do is like, before I vote once every, you know, two or four years, depending, I'll just read like a brief on what the issues are and, and try and figure out like at that point, what's important, but like actually being abreast of the news is not important, you know? Yeah. And I think it's even plausible to me that let's imagine a citizenry where no one read any news. Yeah. I think that the electoral outcomes could be, you know, potentially better. Like it's it's unclear to me that if if you and, had wait, like any any news, well, like I guess no, that wouldn't work because then then they wouldn't know how to get to the polls and stuff. So there are complications. <laughs> no, but, you could, you um, could you, the authorities could just you know, like mail an, out like instructions. That's like instructions. That's just like driving directions. Yeah, driving that seems, directions. That seems that's easier. Fine. Yeah, true. Yeah. But I guess what I was really getting at, um, wait, yeah, okay, so because I don't follow the news as much, I, I'm not totally up to speed on the Chad GPT um, version number four. I did, however, run across an article briefly on Twitter um, where it was very pessimistic. It was saying because human, uh, sorry, uh, because AI is now showing that it can outperform humans, that the chances of the world ending are 33 percent that's like, and, scott and, alexander's piece yeah oh yeah scott alexander yeah, yeah that's the that's yeah, yeah. piece i didn't finish he, reading that one it looked really good yeah and, and, he, and it, it pointed me to that there's like this entire doom universe of people who are like really I mean, worried about this stuff so and like, he was the optimistic one yeah. so scott alexander in that he's like here are all the other people who have made public predictions and they're like 50 percent 60 percent 
that sort of thing. And he's like, here's the optimistic view. Only 33% chance the world will end. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we're going to talk about philosophy of mind here, but um, actually, like, one of the bigger interfaces with philosophy and this topic over the past several decades is this, like, existential risk kind of field. Yeah. And that, I mean, has been, like, wild proliferation of ways to make you depressed about the future of the world. And, I mean, AI is always, like, very high up on this. And, and you know, this is, like, tied to that part of philosophy that has been under ignominy recently because of... Uh, of Sam Bankman Freed and the whole Will McCaskill universe, like the EA people, the effective altruism people have been like very, very interested in this kind of like long-term can humanity survive things, things like that. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about this subdiscipline existential risk? I'm not familiar. And I mean, and and more than, let me impress you a bit more on that. Like I never delved into it on in the Sam Bankman Freed stuff because the little scratching I did of effective altruism, it seemed like such rank hackery and like dumb, like millennial, like bullshit that, that like, it just like, I, I, I dismissed well, so- it almost out of hand. But let me say one more thing about that. At the same time, you have these other people like Eric Schmidt and like Kissinger writing pieces about like AI destroying the world. And, and it's like, I think Kissinger's too old, quite frankly, to even understand what AI is, even though he's a smart guy. But like Eric Schmidt, I'm like, okay, so Kissinger's talking to Schmidt, and Schmidt's probably writing these things with Kissinger's like sparkling some some geopolitics into it. But like, uh, like Sam, convince us in like human terms that this is not just fucking gobbledygook futurism that like involves in some sense this concept of the fucking singularity, which is another <laughs> annoying concept that Silicon Valley people love to like hump. I mean, you're you're asking me to defend. Um, yeah, one of my very least, my like very <laughs> least favorite parts of my discipline. Just explain so, it. Explain okay. it for 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 mortals. Okay, I mean, like the background to this part of the discipline is utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. So, Peter Singer, in particular, is a kind of primary figure as you like sort of trace out this like millennial tech bro philosophy kind of overlap thing. Mm-hmm. The basic idea is that the moral system that we should be running is one that maximizes something like happiness or the greatest good like one of these kind of like vague shadowy terms that no one actually knows what they're that that no one like really defines really carefully for you and then they say okay given the fact that that's our goal maximizing x term for the greatest number of people we need to think not just in like very localized ways um and actually people is like an interesting question there like singer like famously doesn't think that the like the the entities for which you're maximizing are just humans. Like he thinks that you need to expand that range in all kinds of ways. Um, but a funny but, side note about Peter Singer. Yeah. I think yeah. you're the one who told me about it and it was hilarious when you showed it to me, you showed me <laughs> Let's like definitely his, Amazon, this in the show notes. <laughs> his Amazon book page, which has all of his book covers. They all have his face on like it's just like peter singer is the cover of all of his different books in different positions like with different expressions it's incredible it's like no it's like looking through his like um his like aging fo- photo album yeah. it's like s- s- sort of flip through and you're like oh like middle-aged peter singer like less middle-aged peter singer like actually old peter singer that's um <laughs> this is like why they're worried in the f- worried about the future because like it just looks like it's not going that well for him specifically <laughs> Um, no. So, I mean, the, you know, the upshot of this is then people say, okay, like if we need to pay attention to benefit for humanity, let's not just consider currently existing human beings. Let's consider 
our species well into the future or possibly like successors to our species. This is where it like overlaps with transhumanism. Mm -hmm. And so then you get these kind of models which say saving humanity from uh, like major cataclysm is a more important goal than say currently alleviating poverty in San Francisco. And so you get this kind of um, recalibration of a philanthropic industry to say, let's just pay attention in like what they call like the most rational way possible to the actual stakes at hand and then calibrate our philanthropic giving right. um, accordingly. And like, you know, there are some aspects, like we all have a friend who's in the, um, it's, this has been like, um, uh, like the philosophy salon um, month on wisdom of crowd. So Osita and I, uh, who was on last time, uh, set up this reading group thing that Demir and you, you're both part of. And one of the people that's been in that group uh, is um, Dylan Matthews, who famously like donated a kidney based upon this kind of. Mm. Um, Wait, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, has was very involved in EA early on. And, um, and it's interesting. I mean, he's, he'd be a really interesting guest to have on at some point to kind but of talk he, about. Sorry, he donated a kidney for the future. No, I mean specifically on this kind of like less Logic. less the long long termism part of EA oh, and okay. more the okay how do I understand the resources that are on my side and then how to maximize those okay uh, after I've just slagged off the yeah. entire sort of yeah. subset well, of people who follow this this <laughs> idea we should have him on and yeah okay I'll be nicer next time then no but I mean it's just to say that like you know even if uh, I think we're pretty agreed that there's a lot of this that's like it's not too bad that it's deflated. There are also some interesting parts that, like, oh, that's actually kind of inspirational. So where's um, AI get into this then? Like, what's their take on uh, AI? Beca- because AI looks like one of these, like, sort of large large risk categories. And so you have um, the Center for Existential Risk at Oxford that was famously, like, kind of doing this stuff uh, probably, I don't know when it was set up, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, that started looking at this. And AI was one of their principal kinds of risk factor things. Um, and that has played it played up in all kinds of other. But and so like, you know, like even people like Elon Musk that have been like worried about this um, have 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 also like played played it. But so know, look, like they've been influenced here, by that. <laughs> Nick I, Bostrom. You know, I, 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 I sort of follow the, the existential risk. I, let me let me throw out two things. Maybe we can talk about a little bit more of the existential risk. Um, I mean, I, th- I think the philosophy of mind stuff is more interesting. I think it's more interesting, too. But yeah. I, let, let's stick with it for a sec. Because, like, yeah. look, um, I mean, maybe you can explain, like, what the, the, the real worry of existential risk is. I mean, I started skimming the, the, the Alexander, Scott Alexander piece that Shadi was talking about. And it's it's it seems to sort of hinge on the idea that like these things will get smart, um, and I think it's a great line at the beginning, something like you know they will they share they have values different they develop values different from our own, including like the worship of paper clips, yeah. and like yeah. Yeah. and they will as a result in the pursuit of the defense of paper clips develop super weapons to wipe us out. Like I mean okay, sort of you know, and I, I take. The premise that these things are moving very quickly and everyone's concerned that, you know, we've had in the course of six months, you know, going from zero ability to model language to something that is pretty convincingly doing it. And apparently ChatGPT 3.5 to 4.0 itself is like a huge leap in the course of three months or four months or whatever. I mean, it's it's something and it's happening pretty quickly. But, you know, I mean, I guess my question is. What do you think of that, or what do you both think about, like, that sort of existential threat? I guess I, I, I still struggle to see it. And maybe just throw out the other thing. Like, what I think is more interesting about it, especially for the three of us and for, you know, um, 
useless people like us. It's that, like, I, I think we've always felt pretty good about being able to use technology to uh, stay ahead of the curve. And technology up until now has displaced people at different, you know, with different skill sets and rendered entire generations uh, in, like, economic peril as a result. I mean, I, I think the, the more interesting thing of, like, real threat from ChatGPT is that all of us that write, uh, we may really be struggling to figure out and, like, completely recalibrate to what our jobs entail in the future, you know? I, I, I have a sense that, like, the real sort of disruption will come in in our world, which has up until now only been helped at the margins by automation and other things. Like, I think parts of what we do are just are likely to be automated and, like, changed uh, in ways that, like, we, we haven't yet even begun to anticipate. So I think it's, it's our sort of elite knowledge class, those workers that are really – screwed going forward i don't think demir that ai can replicate our opinion my opinions for sure but I, I, you should I, try it <laughs> there, there was I, there was a naughty tweet uh out out there that said uh that asked uh to you know to write uh uh in the voice of joe biden when he decided to defend transgender rights i won't quote it here because it'll get me canceled but i will put it in the show notes so the person whoever tweeted that can be canceled all I meant to say there is that you can ask ChatGPT in the voice of Shadi Hamid. Now, I think it doesn't have I enough have, Shadi Trust Hamid, me, I have. It is not it, the real thing. It's not there yet, though. Like, I, I think that – because that's the thing that's coming down the pike on this is I will be able to probably soon, maybe even with ChatGPT4, is, like, take a subset of texts, i.e. download everything you've written that I can find online, feed it to it, and say, focus on this, and this is what you're working from. Um, now, you know – you're much more prolific than me, so you're in more trouble than I am. And, like, there's not enough of it to work on for me. But the more you write, the more replicable you might be. Wow. Okay, interesting. But I, I do <laughs> want to say something about um, existential no, no, this, like, risk before he's, he's, we – He's yeah, just saying ahead. you're not going to have to work as hard. Like, you're just like, write, write my Atlantic essay for me, and then, like, it's – it shows up. Yeah, like hey, that. hey. Maybe, maybe. But, Go on, Shetty, yeah. Okay, the existential risk stuff – I honestly have a lot of trouble grasping it. It doesn't resonate with me at a very fundamental level. And let's just go straight to first principles. I think that look, I've said I've said things to this effect in previous episodes and I hope it I hope it doesn't sound like too oversimplified, but um I don't think God will allow an alien species to come and defend paper clips or whatever, you know, scenario you just said, like, it's not as if anything is possible. If you believe in God, then only certain things are possible. The realm of possibility is, is constrained in some basic sense. So I don't have this same sense of panic about the future. The world, you know, the world will end presumably like with God's, God's ascent. And, oh, you know, I, right. I just, this is not beyond like, but why, 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 why are we the favored creatures? Why? I mean, maybe it's not revealed yet, and God has put us on this earth to give birth to the paperclip overlord AI. That and we're just no, we're, but well, we're, maybe I we're like a snakeskin, and like I we'll believe... just be shed off. Like I, I mean, that's just theology. But maybe God didn't tell you the whole truth. No, you but have access to all but I also believe in Scripture, and I think if that was really the case, then God would have like dropped some hints in in the relevant Scripture. And to, you know, to my knowledge, he hasn't on that particular issue. Because he he loves you so much, he would never lie to you. 
Oh, no, I don't. No, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think God um, lies to his creation. Hmm. No, I don't think. I mean, I guess he could. I mean, if God is all powerful, then theoretically he can do anything. But um, pr- but God can't go against his own stated laws. So if God is the, the most trustworthy, the most, um, uh, you know, all the names of God or attributes of God that we can think of, he can go against his own attributes. But, I mean, that's a bigger theological conversation to what extent God can go beyond himself and, you know, whether that just, like, creates an endless set of paradoxes. But, like, it is it is relevant because it's, like, a question of whether contingency is everything. And that that's sort of, I think, what the philosophy of mind conversation is about also. So, like, is the way you get to setting up a Center for Existential Risk at Oxford is you think... Um, there are maybe you don't even need like endless contingencies. So you could just say the parameters are really wide. Like uh, God's not going to allow the whole universe to get wiped out, but he would let this planet get wiped out. And then you say, let's pattern out the whole range of contingency. And, you know, they've worked on all kinds of stuff. I mean, uh, the questions like about whether our entire reality is just a simulation from like a grade school classroom of a higher species, you know, that that's why it's like so wonky. Wait, did, does like, anyone so... really think that? Like, help me out here because I'm not familiar with that uh, with those ideas. Is is the argument that it's theoretically possible that we're living in a simulation, or do some people actually think that we are living in a simulation? So, it's again part of this sort of philosophy that's very different than my own disposition. The way they tend to do it is like probabilistically. So they'll say, <laughs> "Hey, look, video games in the '80s looked like like." you know, eight pixels, like hitting a thing with three pixels back and forth between, you know, and then like, now look at what video games look like. What's the probability that uh, some, like either our species or like a higher species wouldn't eventually get to the point where they could simulate something like the whole universe. Um, And so the, and so then like, once you do that, then you say, what's the probability that our universe hasn't been previously simulated in this kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so then they say, yeah, actually there's like a pretty good chance. Um, but it's simulation. A lot of this we now know about te- technology. It looks like we're probably in the matrix. These people are sound like clowns. This is this is like ludicrous stuff. <laughs> no, but but I mean, it gets down to. I mean, I think it, it does get down to. This is why this strikes me as as like good fodder for us. Um, is that these are first principles questions? Is that, like where do you where do you begin your inquiry from? You know, and where, what do you ground your 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 starting principles at? You know, again, it, it comes down to do you do you ground everything in a, in an assertion about individuals existing and having attributes like dignity and you know that we need to respect those things and you know that rights flow from that whatever those rights might be however you define them and you you sort of build everything from that or do you say that like well you know I don't know you call all of that into question and then you know and then. The, the problem for me, Sam, with how you, you describe that is uh, is probabilities. You know, I mean, I find I find it yeah. challenging even like talking to people who say like work in intel agencies and um, in uh, um, in government. And, and, you know, I as I understand it, their assessments always are like, you know, they, they have to put uh, probability assessments on. Like a, yeah, 30 percent confidence. in X. But, but you know what yeah. I mean? Like, but but you're looking at you're looking at. At, at expert opinion, and it's really weird to me. It's always been weird to me when experts assign numbers to, like, 
conf you know, there's, there's something that a confidence interval means in statistics, and then there's something that, like, an individual saying, like, I'm 30% confident that something's happened, is going to happen. It's an absurd, like, sleight of hand. Like, 30% is not equal to 30% in that sense. It's yeah. not the same fucking thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so like, you know, oh, yeah, we're not, we're, we're, so you dodge the first principles question and we're like, oh, we're just dealing with probabilities. And yeah, okay, we go from Pong to, to like, you know, uh, I don't I mean, know what, like even Halo. In, and now you're like, and therefore there's a chance, or sure, I guess there's a chance, but there's a chance of anything if you really put it that way. Yeah. It's like, oh, I, oh, it's, it's a pretty good probability. I mean, but like, that's, a, it's, that's an abusive language as far as I'm concerned. It's not a probability. It's just basically you, you. If you cast everything off, everything's possible, right? Ultimately, well, I mean, it's worth it's worth saying that, like, even in statistics, you get that problem, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot more judgment going on in statistical modeling than people usually realize. So like, where you set your p value for a given study, yeah, matters a lot for what the conclusions are that you come out with. And usually you just have to decide. You're like, oh, okay. population is what you're talking about, like what you're sampling in these things, No, the right? prob prob probability. So, like, okay. so it's, where, it's where you say, okay, like this is a salient result versus a yeah. non-salient. Like this, is yeah. this noise or is this like actually something that we're going to trust? And yeah. so the degree of confidence that you're going to put in that is a matter of judgment. You're like, okay, like at this, at this, for this particular topic that we're thinking about, like it should be set really, really tight. Like we, we're not going to like allow a lot of chance that we got uh, false positives here or you're going to say no like it's fine like we'll just kind of accept it and so it you know i think elite one of the things that is important when you're talking about how it's it's actually one of the reasons why i like this project that we're doing so much is that when people who are really serious about thinking are thinking they realize like just how much uncertainty is involved like the questions that we're talking about here what is contingency um, is the universe real? Like how, you know, these are questions that no, truly no smart person, like this is not like, you know, like whatever they wheel out Stephen Hawking and then like, he knows everything like that. There just is no such person in the world. Like they're yeah. just, it doesn't exist. So whatever discipline you're talking about, whether, you know, so disciplines like theoretical physics, um, th theoretical mathematics, metaphysics and philosophy, ep epistemology, usually like these are considered like the sort of top of the academic heap and the very best people in all of those disciplines have no idea about the like primary questions in their disciplines. Like there's a certain level of stuff that we all know and that we like are premises that we're working from. But it's also the case that when you're talking about the like biggest questions of humanity, there's a huge amount of uncertainty and judgment. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think it's one of the like miscommunication things that happens with politics. I, I actually think this is really relevant to the political debates that we're having, which is you kind of have, sort of how it's structured is you have that class of people all of whom have phds doing research at harvard when they're talking to each other they're like i don't know like here like here's where my uncertainty is if you go read journal articles it starts with uh here's a bunch of stuff no one knows and i'm going to tell you sort of how i might think about it when that stuff gets uh taught to whatever undergraduates and maybe master's students who then end up in communicating it externally they're like all of the experts think such and such thing which is tr genuinely never ever ever true and so and the you know the larger population knows that they know that reality is hard and that you know figuring out what's real is difficult and so the lack of um communicating that with a kind of circumspection means people are like oh ex experts are bullshit like what why are we going to trust any of this stuff and so I, I think that i think there is like a political question 
that's like lurking beneath that that's actually really interesting so to say more about that political question that's lurking i think that the political question is uh humanity lives in a state of uncertainty that's just a genuine background fact for every human that's ever existed for our whole political is why actually i think existential risk stuff can be kind of interesting is that it presses you to say hey what if nothing else exists like what like what if it all goes away what if mozart what if the whole planet dies like there's a kind of this is an ambiguity that you actually have it's possible like you could con contend with death in that kind of sense um and you know humanity as a whole has that sort of uncertainty like when you are like working as a carpenter like there just is like a set of practical realities that you have to wake up with and like you could end up like having a workplace injury or maybe your income stream is going to dry up whatever there's a, there's a level of like non-controllability and in all kinds of places in society and when i think when you have a political society that tries to like as part of its justification for power to say actually we have way more under control it's all it's all fine it's all going to work that ends up eventually creating a kind of distrust of that segment of society. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's 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 really helpful um, have you put it that way. Yeah, because for me, I guess the way I approach these things, and I, you know, this has undergirded a lot of our discussions here. It's that, you know, um, I've I've always been sort of always. Since college, I've been convinced that, you know, one certainly can't prove free will. And so yeah. as a result, you know, to, to function in our society, which from the most basic element of law uh, requires individual agency, you have to assume it. If you call that into doubt, like nothing is sensible. Everything is nonsense. But since it can't be proven, at least to my, like, any satisfaction, I think if you, like, try and rigorously get into this stuff, it's, it's impossible. You have to start all political discussions with the following. I assume, my, as my starting premise, that individuals have dignity, free will, agency. And then this is what I, like, you know, my sport on this podcast is just, like, you know, pushing shoddy <laughs> to, to further... <laughs> You know, like lean into his his own religious convictions and justifying his very strong pro-democracy stand, because I don't think that democracy can be argued for without that as its foundational basis. And it's a religious one. It's a fundamentally it's a faith proposition. So democracy is not a, a rational case for what is good, et cetera. It is a case that has to start with that that now, you know, in many ways, that's a pretty obvious statement. And like anyone listening to it out of context will be like, well, yeah, of course. You know, except not, of course, because, you know, most of the people that are the uh, the biggest believers in uh, democracy, democracy promotion, liberalism. And I, I know I'm sort of conflating a lot of things. They're also, uh, I think, increasingly atheists and technocrats. Yeah, that's true. And, right. and it's right. and 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 uh, it's that conjoining that I think leads to a lot of nonsense uh, because because, uh, um, you know, again, the faith proposition, the way you put it there, Sam, I think it, it acknowledges implicitly that there's a leap there. And that leap involves all that uncertainty, which is to say we have to assert or believe, however you want, yeah. uh, that that core tenet about what an individual is, what a human being is, what humanity is. Um, 
And, and, uh, and that leap just brings in all of that uncertainty, I think, in a very honest way. But, that whereas, whereas like the liberal technocratic atheist approach smuggles in an undeserved sense of certainty about all the rest of that stuff into the discourse in a way that poisons everything in the way that you said, that basically allows common sense people that don't spend a lot of time thinking about this, listening to a bunch of these people and being like, you're all full of it. So are you suggesting, Demir, that it would be better for democracy promoters and advocates of liberalism to have faith that it's precisely the fact that they believe in these things divorced from a kind of God-centeredness that creates this undeserved certainty? So I, that's one way of interpreting it. You're making a pro-religion case here. It's better... It's well, better you, to have a religious foundation when I, I guess, we talk you know, about you know, democracy. You know, I'm not religious. That's why I'm, I'm pushing it on you to make that case, because you do have faith. But, like, I, I think that, that where I come at it from is but that uh, while lacking faith, and and that makes me the sort of, like, more of a gadfly in these arguments where I just point out the that the emperor has no clothes rather than having a creative solution for it. But I'm coming from the same place as you, except you're in a more, much more positive you're coming up for a more po positive thing because you have a um, an, <clears throat> an agency affirming faith or like an individual affirming faith that undergirds where you're coming from. For me, um, you know, I just sort of see people making all sorts of moves and all sorts of assertions, and I'm like, that's nonsense. You have, you're, you're not you're standing on nothing to make these sorts of claims. But and you so, just said that without without faith, that you do in effect believe in free will. So if uh, I understood no, correctly. I, I said I said that 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 like I have um, in effect, you I said effectively... I, I said I, I that like one can't exist in a society. You'd go mad if you actually don't believe anyone has free will like you'd right. go, you'd go insane. And the fact that you haven't gone insane suggests that, you know, by extension, that you do believe that people have free will and agency. But this—that's what gets us to the, to the ChatGPT essay and the provocation there. Because I don't know if you—if you recall, uh, and when when listeners read it, um, I get to the point at the very end where I say, like, I'm not sure. I, I outline the negative case. I say that that what ChatGPT is perhaps showing us is that uh, that we're actually a lot less than we think we are. Like that, yeah. in fact, I we are. That that uh, you know what these breakthroughs might show is. At its core, the sort of insight I got from playing with ChatGPT is that the one thing that we used to think was distinctive about human beings and sort of was connected to our individuality, our insolidness, our sort of uh, humanness was language, our ability to do language. And we couldn't program something that could, that could speak because language is too complicated and uh, it involves something ineffable about the individual that that uh, and that was almost like a shorthand proof. We are agents, even if we don't know the exact mechanisms of how our agency works philosophically, but we are agents because of language. And like I just had this sort of flash when playing with ChatGPT was like, oh, shit, we figured out how to model language. And the essay that that like I linked to at the beginning of that by Stephen Wolfram also makes that point that like the big breakthrough of ChatGPT is to model human language, something that we thought was beyond modeling up until now. Um, and so, so, you know, my whole essay there is me actually going where I actually come down on these things, which is, you know, 
more of a, a pessimistic sort of nihilism about this, which is like maybe there isn't maybe agency and all these things aren't real. But you'll note at the end, I say, I'm not sure I believe all of this. I'm not sure that that like I, I will make the the opposite leap into ultimate nihilism and say none of it matters. We're all automatons and stuff like that. I'm just saying that uh, I feel like ChatGPT has struck a blow against a certain kind of certainty that like atheist techno technocrat liberals had about uh you know, the possibility of, of human agency. Um, and that like the bar is a lot higher for them to now prove that in some sort of non faith based way. I still think that the road to believing in human, you know, individuality and like dignity and, and the individual and, and, and in solidness is there and it's religion. I absolutely believe that that's the, that's the way out. And if you accept that, like, all of modern society flows from it just fine, you know? But like I said, I think the difference what you're saying, like where I come from it, where as opposed to where you come come at it from, and I don't, you know, Sam, I think you're closer to Shadi, though I, I know you're, you're much yeah. more deeply studied and have like all sorts of interesting variations on the theme. But for me, for me, it's, it's, it's that, um, how do I put it? My skepticism allows me to bring in all of that indeterminacy we were talking about and like treat it, I think, seriously in a way mm. that your faith ought to let you do the same thing because it's the same move basically is to say like, we actually don't know um, that like that through normal human means and through normal sort of enlightenment scientific inquiry, we're, we've hit a wall into asserting uh, into being able to uh, claim with any certainty that human beings exist. You say, well, of course they do. I believe that. And I say, well, I'm not sure, but I, I'm not going to say that they don't because I don't think that's proven either. I don't think ChatGPT has proven that we're not, uh, you know, but I do think that from like a scientific perspective, it's it's certainly more likely to have proven that we are less than we think we are rather than thinking that robots are, you know, getting smarter I've and getting been, closer to what we are. I've been summarizing your essay as the, so the thesis is, the question is, is chat GPT conscious? And Demir's response is no chat GPT proves that humans are not conscious. Yes. Right. Right. No, that's right. That's, that's sort of the, the insight there. And like I say at the end, I'm not sure I believe it, but it, I, it's meant as more of a provocation. So like, that was why I wanted Sam on here because I knew from previous discussions before I was writing the essay, we've had furious debates about this. And, yeah, like over uh, Afghani food. Over Afghani food. Yeah. And it was the question was is basically like convince me conv where have I gone off in my in my in my sort of thing. But Shadi, I mean, does that make sense? Like it does. It does. And it it sort of it it makes me think even more about it, the argument that I made in the Atlantic essay that knowledge is overrated and that ignorance is bliss. You know <laughs> that these. You know a lot of the things you're talking about. Even if they're true, it's better not to know them. So if if we as humans were in fact less than conscience, conscious and we've been getting it wrong all this time and how we view that, like I don't think it's helpful for a critical mass of human beings to realize that they're not conscious if that is in fact true. Um, similarly, whether or not free will is exists or is real is um it's almost irrelevant to me because i people should behave and act and live as if as sort of as you just said yep. as if free will is real like there's no benefit to be had from 
having more insight into this fundamental question. And I would actually urge people to not look into the free will debates unless you're really there is a risk of like no, no, losing Shani, this yourself. is where you're supposed to be telling people they should subscribe to the pod. Like, this is, <laughs> this is, it's the opposite way around. That's not I, what I would, I would advise people not to read the Mir's essay because yeah, don't, it may don't actually listen. be really bad for you. We're now going to keep talking about free will for an hour and you should not listen to it. That's not a good marketing pitch. Or because or. people people like it's Forbidden. you know it's like the fire you know yeah. you tell people not to touch the fire and then they want the fire so right. it's counterintuitive because yeah. human beings are weird and complicated. Shadi is I the am best reminded, marketer. <laughs> I am reminded, however, the fire so just, is on the other side of the paywall. Just so you know. <laughs> so I just actually have been get, getting into the great um, Danish uh, film director Carl Theodore Dreyer. Um, and his great film, it's called Ordet in Danish. I'm not even entirely sure what that means in English. But anyway, that's what it's actually called. And you can find it on Criterion ch uh, channel if you subscribe to that. But it's interesting. I only bring this up because there is a kind of amusing subplot where one of the family members basically loses his mind and starts to think that he's Jesus Christ. That's actually mm. like this, one of the subplots. But it's interesting how he gets to that point. So the problem is he starts studying theology and philosophy in a graduate program, and they literally blame his insanity on him reading Kierkegaard. Like, that's actually, like, explicit. Like, his father is, like, explaining why his kid is insane. And he's like, well, you know, we made a mistake, and he started studying this um, philosopher. <laughs> Self-loathing so, Danes, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think there's, but so, you know, all jokes aside, there is, I think, something important there that's worth pondering. Is, you know, not everyone has. You you have to steel yourself for philosophy. You have to prepare yourself, and if you're going into philosophy in this deep study, without the requisite preparation, it can really mess you up. But I mean, I'd make the opposite case, which is that. Um, so I think, uh, going through a graduate program can really mess you up. I think that's true. Uh, <laughs> totally. Uh, having spent a lot of my own life in that, uh, state of life. Um, no, but I do think that a lot of what philosophy is, is just doing the most human thing, like genuinely the most human thing, which is, um, Hey, what the hell is this? Like that's, that's basically the discipline and being able to do that. I do think, you know, pretty much everyone is doing that in some basic sense and being able to do that with other people who are also in, you know, doing the same thing is good. And it gives you a kind of confidence and it, it allows a kind of light and air into that room. And it seems to me that actually it's one of the like least class ridden things that if you start asking questions like what is the meaning of life? Those are questions that, um, like I said earlier, everyone um, at Harvard also doesn't know the answer to. Uh, just like uh, every, you know, everyone who's working, doing working class jobs in um, Alabama also doesn't know the answer to. And the capacity to like push into that sort of, like, I think I do think that that's sort of the purpose of uh, this uh, this podcast, which is let's press into questions that are actually so hard that we don't know the answers. And I think there's something about that that's, and you know, 
contest contend with different possibilities like be able to have like strong views but do it in a way that's genu- genuinely unsure where we're going to end up and i th- i think that's actually a very dignifying activity and yeah i mean you can end up in the wrong kind of places but i think having a community around you helps you not do that much more than uh than the opposite which is just like avert your eyes run away don't touch it um I just as think- shoddy is doing now with the news averting <laughs> his eyes running away yeah. But so, Sam, you're saying there is something fundamentally egalitarian, even perhaps democratic about philosophy, that it does level the playing field. Yeah, for sure. And I I actually think the history of, like, social radicalism uh, runs through philosophy in a lot of ways. There's this passage in uh, one of Plato's dialogues that I love where Socrates is talking to this young aristocrat and just gets totally fed up with, like, pompous arrogance of this kid and instead just goes and says, like, I'm... I don't know. I don't think you understand anything. I'm going to go talk to your your slave instead. And uh, then from there, like all the insights of the dialogue show up and like start rolling out. And I, I think philosophy has always done something like that, where it's like it doesn't actually sit very well with with hierarchy or social structure that's too strict. Mm-hmm. Then where where does the philosopher king as the kind of a benevolent dictator figure fit into this? Because I feel like when people think about philosophy. They think about people who have this rarefied knowledge who can then govern justly. Yeah, so that's like one of the most misunderstood things in the entire history of philosophy. The the primary point in Plato there is that, uh, you know, so Plato's great exemplar is Socrates. And what is the principal characteristic of Socrates? That he's told that he's the wisest man in the world, and he says, oh, no, that's definitely not true. And then he goes away and you realize, oh, the reason that I'm the wisest man in the world is because I at least know that I don't know anything in contrast to all of these other people who think that they actually have it totally buttoned down. So, like, you know, if Plato's like recommending a philosopher king, like his best exemplar is the guy who like is very, very clear that he knows nothing at all. Yeah, sure. It's it's the it's the opposite of the kind of like. But at the same time, again, like not to get like so bogged down in, in like the Republic, but then like. At, you know, as the Republic goes on and it sort of goes off, Socrates goes off his script of being like the the dumb fool, like, oh, I don't know anything. Huh? And then, like, <laughs> you know, like later on, he's just like, and this is what the just society looks like. And it seems like a pretty detailed blueprint. No, no, no. And he no, doesn't no, no, arrive, no, no. And he no, doesn't no, no. arrive you... at doesn't arrive at dialectically Dude, by quizzing, by quizzing peasants, but this actually not... he's just like, here's how it rolls. Like we've got guardians and then we got smart no, people no, no. and then we got the philosopher king, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Let's not, let's not necessarily yeah, we, go the, there. We'll get, we'll get very far afield, but that's definitely not the right reading of the Republic. Let's <laughs> just like, this is like now firmly in my wheelhouse. So. <laughs> that's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.